Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Welcome back to the golden age of the silver screen on the MHM Podcast Network, where each episode we review a film from the 1930s or 40s. I'm Chris. And I'm Patrick. And for this episode, we got us one of them wartime movies. Uh, this is the fifth of the, of the six Thin Man films, and I think like the 75th out of 3,000th film with uh, William Pell and Myrna Loy. I've lost count at this point, actually. I think- it was 10th or 11th of their 12 films together. Okay. Let's go 10th. I like that number. Uh, this one was directed by Richard Thorpe, uh, which is the first one without, Oh, I'm blanking out on the previous director. W S Van Dyke. Was that his name? Yeah. Yes. Who had unfortunately committed suicide before this film, if I remember correctly. Um, but Richard Thorpe directs this one and it's starring William Powell, Myrna Loy, uh, Lucille Watson and a thrilling performance by Patrick's very own Gloria DeHaven. <laughs> and if you blink, you'll see a cameo, an uncredited cameo by Mike Mazurki. Do you catch him in this one? Do you know him well enough, Patrick? No, I, I don't think I do. Maybe I do. And I just, he, he gets a lot of uncredited roles and TV roles throughout his career, but he was Moose Malloy and murder my sweet. He was, uh, you might know him as Bruno in Nightmare Alley. I think that's the most recent you had seen. Some like it hot. I forget his name. And he's in Donovan's Wreath. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, he was in the barbershop. Blink and you miss him. Before I begin rambling too much, I got a quickie summary. And really, if you've seen the other Thin Man films, you probably know (laughs) already. Uh, Nick and Nora Charles head to Nick's hometown of Sycamore Springs. I don't know, Illinois? You, I, I don't know if they ever said where Sycamore Springs was. They do not. I always presumed it was in New York. Oh, maybe. Uh, you know, they like to go back between New York and San Francisco, but now they're based out of New York in this one. Uh, they go with their dog, Asta, but they do not bring their son, Nick Jr., because what grandparent really wants to spend any time with their grandson? I, I find that odd. A quick one line, oh, he's in school. He wouldn't, didn't want to take him out. But, you know... In this film, Nick and his dad are estranged, so I'm going to assume they never saw their grandchild, but let's not get too in-depth into that. Yeah, uh, and I can't imagine, well, who's taking care of him? Oh, we left some Cheerios and a bottle of scotch. He'll be fine good. until we get back. Yeah, he's, he's cool. He's good. Nick's father, he's a prominent local physician, and he doesn't really like Nick's choice of profession, his drinking lifestyle, his partying lifestyle. I assume he thinks his... Wife is lovely, but that's more probably because she's got money. I don't know. Uh, When Nick arrives, many of the townsfolk uh, think that, uh, including several criminals, think he's there to work on a case, but he's just there for rest and relaxation. But, uh, you know, Nora wanting to uh, prove to Nick's father that Nick is a good man and worthy of praise kind of stirs up some uh, controversy in a very vague way message to a reporter who blows it up into a really big story. So this causes a little bit of the actual criminals in town to make some assumptions and 
brings them out of the woodworks. I think Norris said something about shaking the tree. Do you remember Patrick? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Which is precisely what she did. And now I guess he's a fa uh, aircraft factory employee named Peter Burton. He uh, has second thoughts on his criminal activity and he goes to, to Nick's house one night because he's going to reveal everything. And as he's about to do that, someone shoots him in the back. Uh oh. And now we've got us a real murder that Nick can prove himself to his father in Nora's eyes or something like that. But after several more murders occur, Nick has everything he needs. He browns them up into one room for a big reveal, as is typical of the thin man. And he gets his man, this time leaving daddy impressed, firm pat on the back, buttons popping off of his vest. He's exploding with delight so much. For a happy ending, grandparents still don't get to see Nick Jr., as far as I know. The end. Does that encapsulate the uh, essence of this one, Patrick? Pretty much. Yes, it does. Okay. This is a wartime film. How did it do? All right. The Thin Man Goes Home, a release, depending on what you read, either the end of 1944, early 1945. I found two showings, uh, dates for showings in 1944 more of a promotional showings for its uh, ultimate release, which is a, a technically January 25th, 1945 uh, per, per, uh, premiered in New York. Uh, that's the same day as National Velvet, the same month as This Man's Navy and A Song to Remember. Uh, it was made on a budget of $1.4 million. It grossed $2.8 million worldwide, uh, was still behind the top five films of 1945, The Bells of St. Mary's, Lever to Heaven, Spellbound, The Valley of Decision, and Anchors Away. And Rotten Tomatoes has it at 75% critics and 79% audience. And that is the very few numbers that I could find on The Thin Man Goes Home. Which is still pretty decent for a fifth in a, a series of films. They're not breaking any new ground here. Other than, in this one, Nick doesn't drink because during the wartime, liquor was cut back. They don't travel lavishly because during that time, I'm pretty sure if you were talking up their rich lifestyle, maybe people might resent it, or at least they're playing it safe. You know, normally they travel first class in the train. This one, they are in coach, I guess it is. Um, and there's only one reference made to Myrna Loy's being rich in this film. So they, they did change it up a little, but it's still much of the same, I would say. It's a drastically different setting than the last film. And I think it works better as kind of, even though it is very formulaic <laughs> uh, and I know you've always warned me of that, but even to, 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 to my observation that the characters are almost playing in the formula now because they're pointing out the, the, the entire formula of the film as the film is going on. It's very meta, if you will. Um, but I like the new setting. I like the different motivation and I like almost the fish out of water, uh, aspect of it. This is not, you know, Nick is Nick's a normal place of being, although he's very comfortable there. He knows the characters, you get a different uh, group of characters and a different uh, kind of, uh, setting. And I, I think it played better, much better than the last film, which seemed highly repetitive. Well, it did. There, there's some charm to this one, but before we talk about that, what did you think about the opening? Because to me, the opening of this one is really off-putting, and um, I dislike it a lot. Up until the the whole train scene, and up until about um, the murder, like 
dad is way too off-putting to me, too stereotypical of the era. But that that whole opening scene on the train I thought was overly absurd, even for Thin Man standards. And you haven't seen the sixth one yet, but um, I think this opening for me out of the whole series is the weakest of them. What did you think of it? I mean, I, I didn't mind once I got to town. You know, what, once you start seeing kind of the background of Nick, that didn't play out too, too, um, uh, it wasn't, as you said, off-putting. It wasn't off-putting. Uh, the whole train sequence, I thought, was a little like, uh, I could care less. Uh, you could have started for me once I got to town and mm-hmm. established that fairly quickly with exposition with the characters of, you know, Nick, why are you back in town? You know, oh, I'm here to see my parents, you know, and just, you know, quickly got into the same place without that sequence. Of course, the film would have been tremendously shorter, uh, but it, it, I, I, I agree with you. Everything prior to arriving in town, I'm okay with them. Everything once they're in town. I like that aspect of it. And I liked the, the characters in this one that, you know, they're small town, but they, they have, big town uh, crime really. And um, I thought that for the setting that these, these criminals were, uh, were actually pretty great. Uh, I mean, we've seen them in other films at this point, but one of the things that I actually enjoy about this film a lot are the criminals in this one, because even, you know, there's crazy Mary in this one. You don't know whose side she's on. I don't hate her, but she does weird things. So I think everybody had kind of a sympathetic twist to them other than Dr. Charles who, and um, Edgar Drake and everybody else, you know, they, they weren't overly evil, but I think they played these people off as potential evil better than the other films, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's... The, the, it, yeah. <laughs> As I said, they're they're a different, slight different variation of what was in, done in previous films, where you saw, to me, a lot of characters transparently they're a bad guy, whether they're the killer or not is something completely different. And this, they 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 hide the bad guys a little bit. There are people that you want to be the bad guy, but they're not necessarily it. You know that there's a sense of danger, such as Crazy Mary. You know, at no point in time did I actually think she's the killer, especially after she died. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, there was something like there's a story behind this character that made her who she is. And I thought that was in, an interesting take on it. This one had a little bit of layers. Yes. But they did throw the the clues as to who the killer was. You know, when the doctor went into Crazy Mary's shack the second time and just barged in. So I think that uh, it was... For doing this five times, I think this story was pretty well placed. Uh, while it was predictable, there were they did a pretty decent job as to not being overly predictable. Uh, maybe this is the comedic Fast and the Furious of the forties. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, Fast. I'll give Fast and the Furious credit, and not much of it, but at least the, most of their films are very different from the previous films. They always have car racing or fancy cars in it in some capacity, but it is not a repeat of what they just did in the previous film. This is literally cookie cutter repeat. This is, this is the first film in the series that I think is drastically different from the rest, mainly because they switched the setting, but the formula of the film of 
there's a murder. There's usually three of them. And <clears throat> we're going to have a big party at the end where everybody's together and, and Nick is going to reveal who the killer is. And you're probably not going to know who it is. <laughs> but it works. I mean, audiences did love it. I think Myrna Loy said that, uh, recognized that this one and the next one are, of course, the weakest of the series. And it was time to go uh, at that point. But um, yeah, it it's definitely starts a different trend. You still haven't seen the last one as we record this, have you? I've been watching them as we review them. Okay. So I'll, next year when we review it, I'll watch that one. Dean uh, Stockwell plays Nick Jr. Fun fact. Oh, wow. Yeah. Grew up fast. Yeah. So, but yes, five and six, definitely not as great as the first four, but, you know, because they're really re- doing the same thing. And in this one, not as much humor, not as quick-witted. I mean, at this point, Dashiell Hammond is way out of the picture. And Dashiell brought a lot of wit and humor to the first film and first and second films. But um, were, did you laugh at any point in this film or was it just more amusing to you? It was amusing. It wasn't outright funny. I don't think it's nearly as clever. Uh, I, I did think it was interesting to see to see Nick a little bit off about wanting to uh, seek his father's approval. You don't, he's usually in control of the situation and there's distinctly circumstances in this film where he's not in control and seeing, seeing him a little bit off put was off put by his father or seeking his father's approval. I like that, that you take, took it kind of a fifth out of water circumstance, but he spent an enormous amount of time. And I know he does it in other films, but in this film in particular, of separating from Nora Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's kind of a Nick solo adventure more than anything else. And that was a little off putting to me is because I liked the chemistry of the two characters together and you didn't see them together nearly as much. Nora was always, I mean, she's somewhat always in the dark, but very distinctly in the dark in this. And the fact she doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. That's one of the charms of the first two films is the banter between the two of them. And it's it's fairly lacking in this one. It's a little bit better in the sixth one uh, because they're on a but boat. I will still emphasize, I like this better than the fourth one. I did like this film better than the fourth one because it was different. The fourth mm-hmm. one just seemed to be like one through three all over again. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have a hard time remembering distinctly what the story of the fourth one was compared to one, two, and three because it was just so cookie cutter, very, very similar that there wasn't enough distinction in the film other than I remember there was a little kid in it or a baby in it. But this film was, uh, you know, because of the different setting, it, it's distinctly different and it, and it stayed with me more. So let's talk about the actors. William Powell. He, he's well, him and Myrna Loy, they're, they're really not acting at this point. Are they, they're kind of just phoning it in, taking a paycheck. Um, I think Myrna Loy, this is her only film during the war and really only did it because nobody else really could see anybody playing Nora Charles. Uh, but uh, what did you think of them at this point in the thin man series? Well, I mean, at this point they're they're the equivalent of Kelsey Grammer and Frazier. I mean, they're in, they, they're inseparable to me. Like Kelsey Grammer will forever be Frazier because that's what I saw him play for 22 years on television and, and, and soon to be at more. 
but you know, like William Powell, you know, you and I reviewed with Laurie just a few months ago, um, my man Godfrey, and, and I see Nick Charles. You know, I that uh, there's so much, there's so many similarities in the performance, and not to say that he wasn't a talented actor, he's still captivating in both roles. But that's all I see in that character in, in Godfrey uh, is a, a very much that a, that character. And they're very comfortable in that role. And I like him in the role the same way I like Kelsey Grammer as Frazier. Um, but they're, they're not challenging themselves. They're not really pushing themselves as an actor or actresses. Um, as you know, as far as um, Myrna Loy, you know, she almost got replaced by uh, Irene Dunn because they wanted to make the film and she didn't want to make a film. Uh, and fortunately everyone kind of supported her not doing it. But, you know, she, in this film, as I said, kind of becomes wallpaper. She's background. She's a supporting character to, you know, William Powell. You know, she, he's the lead in this, and kind of somewhat is he's always the lead. I mean, everything spins around him, but she, she more so than in other films, is in his orbit and not, you know, is not influencing the story. She's being driven along by the story. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that she really didn't want to do it and work during the war. Because she was heavy into doing war efforts like fundraising and stuff, if I remember correctly, right? And she got married, too. Okay. So maybe she, you know, she just wasn't available for the full filming schedule for this one. You know, and, and that might be. And they might have started a script saying, hey, we want to, you know, reduce her character because we're going to have to recast it. And we're going to focus on the star, who is the character, the actor who's been playing the role and not, you know, not draw emphasis to the actress the new actress playing a, a very popular character that was played by another popular actress and and then when she decided to join on then they kind of quietly beefed up her part and threw her in some additional scenes and that's why she's present but not involved and william powell he's only going to be working for about 10 11 more years after this i don't think he really makes any films after 55 maybe so he doesn't really work a whole lot more if I remember correctly. Well, I don't think he needed to. I mean, he yeah. worked pretty steadily for a long time. Another actor that uh, I uh, want to talk about who I enjoy was Donald Meek. Uh, he's too much from stagecoach for me, but I guess he's really just as much as William Powell is typecast as the thin man, Nick Charles. Donald Meek is always to me, uh, that really wimpy character that's lovable and somewhat humorous. I mean, he's a, a character actor that in the moment he's on the screen, I'm going, okay, I've seen, I, I could not tell you the name of the actor, but I know I've seen him in films, you know, but he plays a very, very similar, similar role in many, many different things. And I mean, he's very comfortable, you know, the town that, you know, Nick obviously grew up in, it's filled with characters. And that is part of the appeal of the film is just the, the characters that surround them, although that's kind of a, a, a motif of all the the films, is there's a lot of characters that Nick Charles inc constantly encounters wherever he goes. Also, character actor or I guess actress Lucille Watson, she was third billing on this one, even though she really doesn't have a, a large role herself. But uh, she was probably the next biggest name at this point, I would say. Played Mom Charles. I don't know if she officially had a first name in this one, Mrs. Charles. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, on IMDb, I believe it's called, uh, 
It's abbreviated. It's MRS, Mrs. Yes, I think this. I think you pronounced it correctly. Oh, okay, Mrs. Yes. That, that's how much. That, that's how much background we give to that character in the 1940s. The, the, the third build on the. Correct. Um, you want to talk about your favorite Gloria DeHaven? Man, I feel like the director's just like, uh, you know, that's okay, but can you just be even more dramatic? The okay, uh, you keep saying that my favorite, but I'm assuming. She's the little drama queen who just wants attention and uh, Laura that, Ronson, that... yeah. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. I I didn't know the actress, but no, the character drove me up the wall. I'm like, wow, they had a Kim Kardashian in the 1940s. That's just wonderful. I was amused by her, but I've seen this film uh, about five or six times now, and uh, it, she's she's just crazy to me. Um, the bad guy is the doctor um, who has a, uh, oh, I should say spoiler alert, is uh, Dr. Uh, why the hell am I blanking out on his last name? It's not Nick's dad, Dr. Charles, Dr. Bruce Clayworth. He's not really a masculine man. He doesn't stand out in the crowd. Uh, I would say an upstanding citizen in the film. But, you know, for a small town, I thought he made a great main criminal yeah i mean i didn't see it coming uh, maybe i wasn't paying attention close enough but uh it was it was it was a nice change of pace it was kind of the least likely character that i thought was going to be the bad guy at the end and so uh, i thought it was a, a good misdirect you know i don't know if you read a whole lot of detective books from the 30s 40s or see a whole lot of films murder mysteries from this time, but it always seems like they have a misdirect and the, the main cop or detective pulls something out of their ass last second. It's just a trope that, uh, if you go back, it does make sense in a way, but mainly they pulled it out of their ass. No. Yeah. I mean, if you made it be the heavy in the, from the film, then it's, it's not exciting for the audience. That's what they expect. You know, even to a certain extent, if you hadn't killed off crazy Mary halfway through the film, you know, may, having her crazy Mary with the threatening to shoot people with a gun all the time and having a person get shot, then, you know, obviously it's the audience is immediately going to go towards crazy Mary and, and it becomes less exciting than the audience isn't challenged. And I do believe that audiences like to be challenged. They like to be able to get, get clues of it, but the clues it, it help the, the repeat viewing of the film. If you can fool them the first time because when they go back and watch it, then the answer was there and you just didn't know it. Um, now I haven't watched this a second time to see if that he, if that's the case here, but you know, that's, you know, that can be a very, you know, a successful formula for, uh, kind of murder mysteries. Yeah. I think you can go back and you can see the hints here and there. Uh, especially as I mentioned the shack where he goes bursting in because crazy Mary's going to bonk people on the head. Yeah, that was that at that time okay, I knew he'd done something, but I didn't suspect necessarily suspect that he was a killer. I assumed he had something to do with crazy Mary. So what did you think of the ending for this one? It's the fifth time he gathers everybody in the room, but this time Nora was telegraphing everything to everybody in the room to dad and, you know, audience, the, the characters. Did that work for you or is it just, too much of the same. No, it, it, it worked for me. I, 
I mean, I don't necessarily dislike the let's get everyone together and reveal the killer uh, like the, how they do in these films. I, I, I somewhat enjoy that, um, you know, especially if you're challenging me and making it entertaining at the same time. Um, it, it I, you know, I don't know. I can see why they're starting to say maybe we should be done with this <laughs> because it, to be honest with you, that's, it's a very uh, repetitive formula and, and that goes for the entirety of the film. They changed it up a little bit on this, but how many times are you going to set up, get them in a different setting to get that? You added the additional wrinkle of the fa- the father, his father being there and him trying to impress his father. So there was something different about it. So ultimately I did like the ending in this film still, once again, better than the last one. Well, on that note, let's go around the table here. Uh, after all is said and done on a scale of one to five, do you consider this film a bad one or do you give it a high five? I, you know, I would give this three and a half stars. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I've, and I've enjoyed all the Thin Man films to this point in time. I, I thought there was a steep decline on film four. So it was nice to see something get changed and at least attempt to do something different for film five. Um, I liked it. I would go back and rewatch this before I'd watch uh, the Shadow of the Thin Man again. Um, I, I think a couple of years away allowed them time to kind of get refreshed and take a different approach. Um, I, I, I am curious where this film is going to end at with Song of the Thin Man to see. I mean, obviously, I'm sure it's going to follow the same formula, but are they going to return to similar settings uh, in the the last film? Because I, I, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be severely disappointed if it's suddenly oh, we're back in the city again and they're and Nick and Nora drinking and doing all the stuff they. It's on a gambling <laughs> boat. Oh, okay. Well, a little bit different, but we'll we'll see how that goes. So you're ruining it for me, Chris. But oh, ultimately, yeah, I did the film. Uh, I I would say three and a half stars. Well, I'm a sucker for these films. Myrna Loy said that the last two were, were not as good as the first four, but like you, the, I, I enjoy this film other than the opening with the, the, the train, which I still think is stupid, but I too like it better than uh, the shadow of the thin man. And um, it still has its charm. I still find it weird that they didn't bring Nick jr. I mean, I understand that he wasn't necessary to this film, but no, it's still great fun. It, it's kind of one of the last, I guess, of the 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 '40s detective films that I I like. Uh, I don't know if you enjoy the Charlie Chan films; those are very dated and I would say straight up racist by our standards. But they still have a lot of charm if just the actual mystery of the films, and even Maltese Falcon, any Dashiell Hammett movie or book, and. Um, you know, the, this is just in the tradition of it, even though he was not part of it at this point, but great film. I'm going to give it, uh, I give it three stars, slightly less than you, but it's still excellent film. No, I, it, was, it was a very entertaining film in a very entertaining series. And you could see why people swore that they were, uh, Nick and Nora were married in real life. No, the, the, the actor and actress have great chemistry. Absolutely. And I, I can see why they work 12 times together. Well, that's it for our review of The Thin Man Goes Home. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section and for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com. Please rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you enjoyed today's review, please do not forget 
to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. Until next time at the big show, when we will review another classic from the 1930s or 40s. Uh, Patrick, do we know what we're doing next? I have no idea. Gun Crazy. That's right. Gun Crazy. I got us a noir. Have you watched it yet? I have not yet. Okay, we'll see if you like it. Um, Until next time, I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. And that is a wrap. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Hyperfun is brought to you by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the golden age of the silver screen, the MHN Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.